good morning again. Thank you. If you have a Bible, if you would open it to Mark. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be on page 847 today in the black Bibles that are under the chairs, if you want to follow along with one of those. We're continuing a series that we've called Follow. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to step into the into the viewpoint, into the footsteps of these first century people that first were hearing what Jesus was saying and trying to take serious that call that He calls us to follow. Literally, a disciple is a follower of Christ, a student who comes after Him and desires to sit at His feet and learn from Him. This week, we're seeing Jesus now publicly uh, give Himself to Jerusalem, to the capital of God's people as their King. So we're calling it this week, Follow the King. And I think that we need to pay attention this morning because we are either anarchists or we are tyrants, right? We are either tyrants that want to be king ourselves and want to be in charge of everything and everyone around us, or we're anarchists and we don't really want anybody to be in charge. Uh, And so we need to listen to what Jesus has to say to us today, what the Gospel of Mark has to say to us, because it presents Jesus as the king as the one who will rule and reign and who gives us what we've been looking for. He's the one that brings the order, who brings the peace that we need in this broken world. And so I'm going to read from chapter 10, verse 46, starting in verse 46, read kind of the last section of chapter 10 and the first section of chapter 11, if you want to follow along. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let me pray for us and ask God to open this up to us today. God, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that you would give us faith so like Bartimaeus we could see this morning. We could see you as as king and as the merciful one, as the good one for us to follow. We pray that you would teach us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I wanted you to get a feel for what it was like, this procession that they were making heading from uh, the lowlands to the highlands of where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was a very high elevation, uh, about 2,500 feet, uh, and Jericho, where the story starts uh, in, in our little section here, is very low. It's 800 feet below sea level, so this was quite a climb. Right, So uh, Jerusalem, it's referred to as Mount Zion because it was a, a mount area, right? A, a, a low mountain that a city, kind of a fortress city, the way it was set up. So you know, it's hard to attack a city like that that's up on top of a mountain. And so this was uh, the kind of direction that they're going. So they're going up. We talked about this last week. They always say they're going up to Jerusalem no matter which direction they're coming from because physically it's a high elevation. And, and this was reminding me of some of the experiences that I've had going to the mountains. Anyone here? Have you ever been to the mountains anywhere? Um, We're not in the mountains now, right? But uh, it's a pretty exciting feeling to go up in elevation to see the heights and see the majesty of of mountains and and even hills. You know, we wish we had more of those around here too. But, you know, just seeing some elevation. And and so what they were doing, this was a a normal pilgrimage, right? They would would come from all over Israel and they would move towards Jerusalem for these seasonal festivals, right? So they didn't come to the temple every week like weekly church right they had dispersed synagogues where they would gather and read the scriptures together uh, that were more like what we would know as church but they would have these seasonal times and this was one of the great festivals of the year this was passover right where they sacri- sacrificed a lamb and they celebrated that god had saved them out of the exodus saved them as slaves brought them out of slavery they sacrificed a lamb and and now jesus and his followers are coming into the city during this festival time this is a really great time. It was kind of a party time. People were excited. They have a whole section of the Psalms that are built around uh, this idea called the Psalms of Ascent, right? And so Ascent means climbing up. And so they, they have this whole celebration atmosphere. Uh, in my own life, I actually became a Christian in the Rocky Mountains. So, so I connect with this at, at a visceral level, right? I can kind of feel what this is like to go and, and see God. Because for me, the first time I saw God was, was in the mountains. The first time I really saw Him for who he was. Uh, I was 17 years old. Uh, it was the first time I'd really gone to a, a Christian camp. I'd, I'd gotten to go to a Boy Scout camp as a kid, but we, we slept in sleeping bags with tarantulas, so it was a little different. You know, this was a, a slightly better atmosphere. It was pretty exciting. And, and so we, we were going to this camp, and, and for the first time, I, th- I think it was the combination of both the clear presentation of the gospel, who Jesus is, this one that gave himself for me, but that was coupled with just the, the awe of the mountains, right? I mean, there's just something beautiful about this elevation and the majesty of it all. So I, so I feel like I can kind of connect with what they're feeling as they go to celebrate uh, their covenant God. Celebrate the God that rescued this people out of slavery. Celebrate this God who is the king of the universe. And so that's the, the kind of atmosphere they have. I remember a year later uh, going to a Young Life camp, actually. We were just talking about Travis being a part of Young Life here locally. I went to a Young Life camp the next year after I'd become a Christian and brought some non-Christian friends to that camp. And we actually had the opportunity to do a hike from the kind of mid-level, about halfway up the mountain, to all the way to a peak, uh, making that sort of distance. I think it was about the same distance there, traveling from Jericho up to the top of Jerusalem. And it was just this incredible feeling. And so I want you to, I want you to get that picture, right? That, that these people are they're coming with expectations. I don't know if you have those kinds of traditions or if you've had those kinds of experiences where, where you expect that you're going to have an experience with God. 
I mean, I hope, our prayer is that, you know, weekly church, you would come expecting to get a glimpse of who God is. It's, it's not quite as great as the mountains, right? But, but hopefully through the Word and through song, you, you get a glimpse, you get a taste of who God is. And this is the kind of expectation that the people are coming up, they're climbing up to Jerusalem with these kinds of expectations. They're hoping to see God, and this is the very time when Jesus reveals Himself now publicly as the King. And the first thing that we see before they climb, when they're in the low, dusty desert part of Jericho, the first thing that we see is that he's merciful. That he's a different sort of king. He's a merciful king. And we, we have this wonderful picture of Bartimaeus, this blind man who can't physically see, but he sees the king. It's this, it's this beautiful juxtaposition. It's, a, it's an irony, right? He can't see people, but he can see Jesus. He recognizes who the true king is. So the first thing that we learn is that he's the merciful king. And I want to reread in verse 46 what we see with Bartimaeus here. They came to Jericho. So Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. So Jericho is a low desert place, a hot place, a dry, dusty place. And it says, um, when they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now there's some disagreement in the way this is phrased between the different Gospels. And I just wanted to address it just real briefly because there were two Jerichos uh, in the first century. There was the old Jewish village of Jericho and there was the newer built-up Roman city of Jericho. And so to me that, that kind of explains how uh, one Gospel writer could have been referencing one part of the city and the other could have been referencing another part of the city, kind of like two cities right next to each other. One was saying he was healed while coming in, and the other was saying he was healed while coming out. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there, that generally when you find these kinds of contradictions that your college you know, history 101 professor says, see, the Bible can't be relied on. Well, if you study a little bit, you can, you can find why it makes a little more sense. And so there they meet Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and he says, the son of Timaeus, right? And so Bartimaeus, that, that's how they would say son of, they'd say Bar. And Timaeus means uh, honor, is a really interesting name. It's interesting because there's not very many people who are given a name in the Gospel of Mark. We noticed that back when we were looking at Jairus. I mean, the disciples are given names, and you know, a few people are given names, but it's, it's an unusual thing to be given a name. And this is, a, again, I think a picture of Jesus' mercy. It's a picture of the honor that's bestowed on someone who society would have just seen as a throwaway, Right? Society would have seen as just someone cast aside, blind. In, in that culture, they would have understood someone being blind because of sin, right? That they would have been, there was they were something wrong with them, right? And, and Jesus would continue to teach that they misunderstood sin and that sin was something that had worked its way through all of creation and that we're all broken by sin. Some of us are more physically broken than others, but all of us are broken, and all of creation is broken, and all of us and all of creation needs the restoration that only the true king can bring. And so here, Bartimaeus, is, he's honored. He's, he's given uh, distinction. He's given a name. It says he was calling out, verse 47, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so we need to pause again and, and just recognize that when he says son of David, he's calling him king. Son of David is the word for king. Um, David was the great and most famous king of, of Israel's history. And all their messianic prophecies were based on G, uh, David having a son in the future, some grandson that would restore the glory. 
that the great kingdom would come back and he'd be even better than King David. And so when he calls him son of David, he's calling him king. So a, a public proclamation of his kingdom and at the same time a proclamation that he's merciful. Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. You are the king and I'm asking you for mercy. I'm asking you for grace. And again, it's interesting, the society treated him as a throwaway. The culture said, stay out of his way. They basically said, shut up. Verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I just want to stop and encourage you that if you have people in your life telling you to shut up and leave God alone, that he doesn't have time for you, but not to listen to them, but to be bold like Bartimaeus and to keep crying out to God. God, have mercy on me. Help me. Don't listen to everyone else when they say, be quiet. God's too busy for you. He doesn't have time for you. They say, leave him alone. But he keeps calling out. In verse 49, it says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. I I got a picture of a beggar. We live in somewhat a small, a a relatively small community here. We don't have a lot of beggars. Um, I've got family in New York City and family in Washington, D.C., so, you know, walked the streets and seen a lot of beggars. Those of you that have lived in bigger cities, uh, you get kind of used to them, almost. Uh, But generally, people don't make friends with beggars. Generally, people don't invite beggars into their entourage. Generally, people uh, wouldn't want to kind of hang out and rub shoulders with them because they would feel that they were unclean, right? They might be mumbling crazy things to themselves, or they might look dirty, they might look unkempt. And I think it would be even more so in a first century setting. It would be times 100 in a first century setting where this beggar was just sitting on the side of the road. But Jesus stops and says, bring him to me. Jesus says, I want to know him. I want to have a relationship with him. Jesus is not like us. Jesus has a mercy that, that we don't understand. And he calls the beggar to himself. He says, call him. He throws off his cloak, it says in verse 50, he sprang up, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Which is an echo of what Jesus just said to James and John in in last week's section. Remember last section where James and John want to be his secretary of state and his vice president, right? They want to have like golden thrones next to him. He's saying, what do you want? And Jesus tells them, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into by wanting to be on my right and my left. He uses the same phrase to the blind man, what do, you, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now again, there's irony all through this text because he's already got sight. Because he already recognizes that Jesus is the king. He already sees that Jesus is the king and that Jesus is the merciful king. He recognizes this. But Jesus, overflowing with grace, heals him. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Saying you have faith. You understand who I am. Now you're, now you can see. Now you're whole. Now you're healthy again. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now does this mean that every time we believe in Jesus, all our physical ailments are taken away? Some people would teach that. And they would teach that if you are still sick, if there are still remnants of brokenness in you, it's because you don't believe enough. But Jesus never qualifies faith in that way, that 
that it's not enough, and if you just have more, right, then then you'll be better. Then you'll be okay. When when Jesus talks about the smallness of faith, right, if you just have the faith of a mustard seed, or you know, if you just have a tiny bit of faith, what he's saying is that it takes like hardly any faith at all. If you trust me at all, amazing things will happen in your life. And he's saying that Bartimaeus trusts him and he's overflowing with grace, giving him health, giving him sight. And what I want us to understand is that Jesus, Jesus can heal you physically. I've, I've seen that happen in people's lives. I've seen people pray and, and have the tumor go away. I've seen people pray and be set free from depression and set free from physical problems. But those same people die later. The same thing happened in the first century. Jesus healed people and then they got sick and they died. And so it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth when someone is physically healed. And yes, Jesus did that. And yes, Jesus can still do that today. But it's a foretaste of what is to come. He's giving us little windows into what is to come. He wants us to know the bigger healing, the greater healing, the new heavens and the new earth, the ultimate healing that we look forward to. So Bartimaeus... He can see and he's celebrating God all the more and that allows him to praise God more. But later on, Bartimaeus dies. And Bartimaeus, just like us, his hope is not in the temporary healing of Jesus. His hope is in the permanent healing of Jesus. And that's the same hope that we have now. We hope in the resurrection. We hope in our bodies being uh, transformed. Now, I'm, I'm just like anybody else. When I'm sick, I pray and I want God to f- fix me now, Right? But, but I also pray that God would give me perseverance to trust Him whether He heals me or not. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to see Him as the good King, as the merciful King. I would recommend for further study on the subject, I'd recommend you looking up 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's this kind of a landmark passage where Paul talks about the resurrection. He talks about the new bodies and the glory that's there. And he talks about how our, our faith is, is built on that, how important that is, how central that is, that Jesus rose from the dead so we know that we will be raised from the dead. There's also a, a great essay by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Weight of Glory. And I would highly recommend that. Any of you that enjoy John Piper's ministry, uh, you know, most of his ministry is built off this one little essay from from C.S. Lewis. It's this great essay that just talks about the weightiness of the future resurrection, the weightiness of glory that we look forward to in Christ. We look forward to a bodily resurrection. And so that is our hope, and that's the hope of Bartimaeus as well. We, we all await for that future where everything is going to be made right. The, the other thing I want us to think about is how we could be spiritually blind, right? So Bartimaeus was physically blind. And as I said, this, this points, this begs the question of how come the people that can see with their eyes, right, his disciples can't see uh, with the eyes of faith and really recognize who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so there's this irony where the physically blind man has eyes of faith to see. So how do we, how do we have uh, blindness spiritually? Like what are the blind spots in your life where you have a hard time seeing who God really is as He's revealed Himself? I wanted to recommend a book to you that has been recommended to me. And I like this book because it's kind of simple. Um, maybe it oversimplifies things, but he boils down in this book that we basically have four kinds of blindness that cause us problems in life. 
So it's, it's kind of a Christian counseling book. It's called You Can Change by Tim Chester. It says God's transforming power for our sinful behavior and negative emotions. Like I said, I kind of like uh, cliff notes and overly simple things. And I like how he kind of he boils it down to four things. And so I just want to list these out to you. Four ways that we might be blind to who God is. Four ways we might not be seeing God in His fullness as He's revealed Himself. The first is that uh, Chester says we might be blind to His greatness. Right? If you're blind and have a hard time seeing God's greatness, that's going to cause you to feel like you have to control things. You're going to think that you have to be great to, go over, to overcompensate for a God that cannot be trusted. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like, I've got to control everything because I can't trust God to keep the universe spinning. I've got to control things. He says, then, then you've got a spiritual blindness there. You've got a blind spot and you have a hard time seeing Him as great, as sovereign, as all-powerful. The second thing he talks about is being blind to God's glory. Are you blind to God's glory? If you're blind to God's glory, then you might think people have a more important glory. You might fear what people think of you. This is something that I've wrestled with over my life. Just confession time here. This is something I struggle with. Wanting to please people more than pleasing God. And so if we have our eyes opened, if we can really see His glory, how incredible He is, we're not a, we don't care what people think. We're not afraid of the opinions of, of men. The third one he lists is, is a blindness to his goodness. Do you see, can you fully recognize how good God is? And what he says is if you don't see how good God is, you're going to settle for the goodness of temporary things. You're going to satisfy yourself with comfort and temporary pleasure in ways and in things that don't last. He says, but if you recognize God's goodness, then you're going to be able to live by faith and say no to things that God tells you to say no to. And to be patient when God tells you to be patient. Not try to satisfy yourself only in the here and now. The last one he talks about is God's grace. Can you see God's grace or are you blind to God's grace? And he says what happens is then you're always trying to prove your worth, right? You're always trying to live up to something if you don't recognize His grace. Which is the thing that we saw here in the text that Bartimaeus was, was so good at recognizing. He recognized that even though he'd had a horrible life, even though he had lived a life of abuse and pain and terrible suffering, he still believed that Jesus was a king of mercy. And so I want to challenge us this morning. Do we, do we still believe that? Do you call out to him in hope? Do you believe that he is a God of grace? In Matthew 5, he describes it as how important it is to, to come to that place of recognizing your blindness, right? In the Beatitudes, it talks about recognizing that you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are uh, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you, have you come to that point of recognizing your spiritual blindness? Because you've, you've got to be there first, right? You've got to recognize that you're Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road blind, before you're going to call out to Jesus for help. And once you recognize that, and with the help from this book, recognize the specific ways in which you're blind, then you can call out to God for help. You can call out to Him to come near to you as the merciful King. The next thing that we see is, as this story unfolds is that He's the public King. He's now revealing Himself more publicly as He comes into the city and basically He stages a parade. Right? He, he publicly unveils himself. And this has been interesting. We've seen in Mark, and you see this in the other Gospels as well, he's always telling people, don't, don't say anything. Right? 
Don't tell anybody about me. And that's always kind of curious and confusing to us when you read the Gospels. And the, the most sense I can make out of that is that he didn't want people to be his campaign manager if they didn't understand his campaign. Right? So he didn't want to publicly reveal himself if the people didn't really know what he was about. They didn't really understand it. They were just like, our boy from Nazareth, he's the king. Alright, let's go. They didn't, they didn't get the, the full scope of what he was going to do. And so he's always telling people to be quiet, but now he's publicly revealing himself. Now he's saying, this is it. Here I come. So, so let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So it's common for a very important person to ride an animal that's never been ridden before. He says, Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. They untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And so here, uh, some people, some different commentators will kind of argue about whether or not Jesus planned this ahead, uh, or whether or not this was just kind of a supernatural event. And I'm not sure that it really matters in this sense because we already know Jesus is supernatural and we already know Jesus is is capable of planning ahead. So he could have done either one, right? But the important part is that he is setting himself up to enter in on an animal, which like I said is a public display. This This is turning it more into a parade where if he had just been an ordinary pilgrim coming in for the Passover, he would have just walked in with the crowd like everybody else. But he's stopping now and taking the time to set himself up on an animal. And this is something distinct from what he's done so far in his ministry. This is something different. It says in verse 7, They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. So now we have the public unveiling of Jesus on an animal. Riding in. Instead of walking in with everybody else now saying, No, I'm going to ride in. It's now time to publicly unveil myself as the king of the Jews. And I wanted to go back and give you some references from the Old Testament because they had expectations that he would be unveiled as a king, right? They expected him, and that's part of what's caused confusion throughout the Gospels is often he doesn't unveil himself in the way they thought he would unveil himself. So I wanted to go back and read uh, Daniel 7.13. Daniel says, I saw in night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is kind of very impressive messianic language, right? This great king has an everlasting kingdom. And this imagery is then picked up in Revelations 19. In Revelation chapter 19, we have the picture of Jesus coming in on the white horse. It's a famous passage. It says in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He 
will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A lot of young preachers like to say that this proves that Jesus will return with a tattoo on his thigh. Um, I mean, it could be a sticker, so I don't know. I don't want to say it. You know, absolutely. But this is the vision of the, the, the war Jesus, right? This is the war horse Jesus. This is the mighty Jesus. This is the big King Jesus that they're expecting. I had a picture here I got of a, a horse because I wanted you to just be reminded of this. Most of you have probably seen a horse. Anybody ever seen a horse up close, ridden horse? Yeah, a few of you? Okay. Um, we're in Texas, so hopefully, you know, take some time, see a horse while you're here. But horses are just a giant rippling muscle, right? I mean, horses are mighty beasts. And not only would it give you a tactical advantage in battle to have a horse, but you would just look a lot cooler if you were riding on a horse, right? And so horses are big and horses are powerful, but but Jesus rides in on an animal that looks more like this. For those of you that were here three years ago, when we were in Matthew in the same passage, I, I was able to find the exact same picture. I love that picture of the cute little donkey. But that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of animal that, that Jesus rode in on. And so we see in the scriptures, we see this juxtaposition that, yes, he is this great king, and there is a future. Revelation tells us clearly, he is going to come with the sword shooting out of his mouth and the tattoo and the blood and the big horse. I mean, that, that Jesus is coming, right? That Jesus as judge is coming. But the way he reveals himself in our text this morning as he's coming into the city is as the humble one riding in on the, the colt of a donkey. And so it's this beautiful picture. And, and there is, there's other literary echoes as well. This is kind of a, an echo of, of King David. King David made it a point to ride on mules and on animals like that. And so out of humility now, he's kind of reflecting again that he is the Davidic king and reflecting that same humility of David. Many authors think this is a reflection even specifically uh, in Zechariah. We have prophecies that reflect uh, David coming back into the city after his son Absalom had rebelled against him and then he died. And so he kind of came back in to a city that had been in rebellion against him. But now he's returning as the rightful king in humility on a donkey. And so this, this, this picture, all of this is kind of wrapped up in Jesus' entrance into the city, coming into this rebellious city in humility. Zechariah 9, 9 is the famous one that is reflected here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus comes humble. He is absolutely righteous. He is the judge of the whole world. And the judge of the universe comes to us in humility. The judge of the universe comes down from heaven and enters into space and time and lives as one of us and suffers as one of us and is abused as, as one of us and gives His life for us because He loves us. Because He wants to save us from ourselves, from our own sin and from the brokenness of this world. This is the picture of Jesus as He reveals Himself publicly. He's now finally entering into Jerusalem. He's finally coming in. He's finally now staging a campaign, setting up a parade, and He rides in on a donkey. The the next thing that we see is that He's an earthly king. If it picks up uh, up in verse 8, 
with the, the public nature of this and, and now basically everyone else rallying around. He's, he's setting up a parade. He's coming in on a, on a mount. And now everybody else is saying, yeah, he's the king. We, we want Jesus. Verse 8 says, Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. If you're uh, not from a church background, this is where we get the term Palm Sunday, right? So Jesus enters Jerusalem before He's killed and resurrected. And so a church that follows a, a church calendar, a liturgical calendar, will celebrate this text the week before Easter. Because then we celebrate the resurrection at Easter and we celebrate what they call Palm Sunday here because they're throwing down palm branches. And you know, kids carry around palms. I'll be in Guatemala, so hopefully we'll give some kids some palms on on Palm Sunday. But um, they're spreading their cloaks on the ground. They're spreading uh, branches on the ground. They're saying basically make way for the king, right? Here comes the king. They're, They're all celebrating him. And all the other times before... Right When people would come around and say, we want to make you king, it would say that Jesus would slip away. Right, But here, he's, he's finally unveiling himself. He's finally coming in and saying, yes, I am your earthly king. I am the Davidic king. I am the one that comes to reign and rule from Jerusalem. It says in verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a word in Hebrew, a poetic word from the Psalms that means, God save us! Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, a reiteration that he is this official Davidic king, this descendant of David that's come finally to set things right in the world. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. They're now doing the equivalent of what we do in our culture when we begin campaigning for a new president, right? Presidential campaigns are going on right now. Some of you may have bumper stickers on your car. Some of you may have like Facebook bumper stickers. I guess that's one of the new ways we do bumper stickers, you know, saying things about candidates and commenting on those things online. Back in the old days, people would wear buttons. Do people do that anymore? The buttons, right? I found a picture of a button here. It says, Vote Jesus, right? Now, I picked what, it was kind of a corny picture here on purpose because I want you to feel a little bit uneasy about this, right? Because on the one hand, yes, of course we should vote for Jesus, right? But on the other hand, that's a little corny, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a little demeaning for Jesus? And what I want us to rest in for just a minute and just kind of think about is that Jesus was an earthly king. He did come for an earthly kingdom. And oftentimes we make this kind of spirit, uh, earthly distinction where we set it up and, and think, well, no, that was totally beneath him and he wasn't interested in that at all. And you know, it's the same kind of thinking that's like, well, in the whole Old Testament's bad and just throw that whole thing out. And, you know, we can kind of go to extremes. But he came to fulfill the promises of an earthly king, of an earthly Messiah. He's not less than the earthly king. He's, he's more than that, right? He's that plus more. He's not just an earthly king. He's also a spiritual king. He's also the king of the whole universe. But don't shortchange the earthly king. right? Don't skip over that too quickly. He is more than the earthly ruler. He is much more. And so I want us to think about the ways that we express our allegiance to an earthly king and then think, how are ways that we could express allegiance to Jesus as the ultimate king? Right? Now, again, it doesn't necessarily mean wearing a vote for Jesus. I am not, I'm not advocating vote for Jesus 
buttons, right? I, what I'm asking you to do is, is genuinely ask God, how, how should I do this? What, what does it look like, Jesus, to, to throw down my cloak on the ground? I mean, think about that. They, they probably only had one or two cloaks in the first century, and they're throwing it on the ground for Him to ride over it because they want to give honor to Him. They want to lift Him up. They want to get everybody else to look at Him and say, look, this is, this is the King. This is one we're looking for. What, what would that look like in your life? How would we lift Him up? I mean, there's, there's, ob- there's some obvious answers, right? I mean, that's part of what we do when we sing. We're, I mean, we're celebrating Him. We're saying, Jesus is the King. He is the ruler of the world. He is the one that's come to save us. Hosanna. Save us, O King. So, so there are some obvious ways that we already do that. But what would God have you do in, in your life? I think a real simple way that I want to challenge you too is, is like Bartimaeus, that you would call out to him as king. But just in your own life, that, that prayer wouldn't be something that you do because you're supposed to because you're thinking that you should be a religious person. But that like Bartimaeus, you would genuinely believe that, that he is the king and he can help you. And that you would call out to him. I believe that that's a way that we could, you know, better than putting a bumper sticker on your car, better than wearing a button, that, that's a way that you could kind of nominate him for king in, in your own life. Is call out to him as king. Are you doing that in your life? In, in your daily life, moment to moment, are you saying, God, help me. Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, be king of my life. Jesus, direct me. And second to that, something that, that we emphasize again and again is, are you allowing His Word to guide your life? Are you reading the Scriptures? We, you know, we put together this Bible plan here. I don't know if I have it with me. Here it is. So, you know, we put together this Bible plan for you. We have a space here in the bulletin where you can take notes on the sermon, and then there's a space on the back where you can memorize the Scriptures that we're working on for the month. There's a Bible plan that we've designed so that you can understand how the Old, and the te- Old Testament and the New Testament come together so that you can see how Jesus is the King that they were expecting, how He is the explanation of the Old Testament, how He makes sense of this book. Are you going to His Word? Think about it in, in military terms. Have you, have you recognized that He's the commander? Do you, do you understand the commander's intent for your life? Are you aware of, of your, your operation orders? Is that the right way? Is that how you say it? Do you, do you know His purpose for you? Do you know His mission for you? Because if you don't, you need to read his book. And again, I want to encourage you, you know, we've given a plan here that, that tries to translate it into something more understandable. If this is too much, just read, the, just read the Gospel of Mark that we're already reading. Or just read the Gospel of John. And then read it again. And as you read it, ask him to teach you. Ask him to help you understand what his will is for you in your life. But, but allow yourself to be led by him as king the king of of your life in this earth. Not just waiting to die and go be with him in heaven, but that you would actually change the way you live day to day in the here and now because he is your earthly king. Part of the reason he was killed is because none of the rulers of that time wanted him to be an earthly king. They didn't want him to change the way people lived. It's a dangerous idea. But as Christians, we're saying our ultimate allegiance, our first allegiance is to Jesus as King. So do we live that way? Do we listen to what He has to say? Another thing, I've recommended this before, is is reading His Word to your kids. Do do you read the Bible to your kids? If you have kids or if you have nieces or nephews. Uh, A couple that I recommend is the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Big Picture Story Bible. 
two story Bibles that do a great way of kind of showing how Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament, how He is the main idea of the whole book. Read that to your kids, and that will actually help you understand the Bible better yourself. I've already been to seminary, and those children's Bibles have helped me to understand the Bible better. So, so read the children's Bibles to your kids and, and learn more yourself, but also teach your kids what it means to follow Jesus as King. Well, as we conclude, I just wanted to read the last verse here. The last verse in our section is 11.11. 11. It says, in 11.11, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Here's the great entrance of Jesus into the city. And this is a cliffhanger for next week, so you're going to have to come back next week and see what happens. You see, Mark is a a writer, an earthly writer, that understands how good stories are written. Jesus is celebrated. He's he's coming into the city. Yay, Jesus! He walks into the temple. He's like, all right, boys, let's go to Bethany and spend the night. We'll come back tomorrow. And he's like, okay, what's next? What are you going to do? Right? We'll see that next week. But I can't resist giving you a little bit of a spoiler. Right? A little bit of a spoiler, because Mark already did it anyway. He already told us three times he's, he's coming in to the city to die. He's coming in the city to die, to give himself over. And so the Bible paints this picture of a Jesus who is king, who is the judge, who will come back on a war horse. And there will come a day when evil will be judged forever. But we live in the time now where he has given himself as an offering for our sin as the Passover lamb. He comes in to celebrate the Passover with his friends and he helps them to understand, you know what, I am the Passover lamb. I'm not just here to celebrate the Passover with you, but I am your Passover. I am the lamb that's going to set you free. If, if you've never come to understand Jesus in that way, I would, I would love to talk to you more about that. I'll be up front if you want to talk to me or just ask any questions you may have. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice that lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die to, to set us free from sin and death, to give us that ultimate healing that we look forward to. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are the good king. God, forgive us for the way that we set ourselves up as king. And I pray that you would gently dethrone us. Help us to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.